series entitled Living in God's World, God's Way. And the idea really is just a simple hearkening back to what the Bible has to say about life in the family, under the civil magistrate, and within the church. We see in the Old Testament that so often um, God was instructing the Israelites to be separate, to be set apart from the rest of the world. And now he had a special purpose for his people in that day. Um, but you remember when they went into the land, his word to them was to, to cleanse the land, that there would be no other people there except his people. And why was that? Because when they were in the midst of a sinful people, they were always led to the practices and idolatry of those sinful people. And we live in Babylon, as it were. That is the milieu that we find ourselves as Christians. There is no more chosen special nation state of God. Christians are across the world. But that danger is always there, maybe even more now, as we live in a mixed multitude of people, that we absorb the practices and the false ways of the world around us. And much of my burden in this series is that I believe that we as Christians so often don't even realize when we embrace unbiblical ways of life, whether it's in our family, how we educate and disciple children, as we'll talk about today, um, how we function under the civil magistrate, how we function in the church. We'll get to those, but we're still under the heading of the family. What I want to do today, I'm going to open up with a passage of Scripture that's going to be sort of a, a jumping off point. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Jeremiah 6, and verse 16. Jeremiah 6, verse 16, around the middle of your Bible. says there in Jeremiah 6, 16, and this is the holy word of God. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. May God bless the reading of his word. Father in heaven, we, we do come today and we come to, to hear your word. We come to receive the, the bread of life. We, we need this manna from heaven. Lord, we live in a, in, in a world uh, that is unclean, and we as, a, as your people are stained by the world. The, we still have sin that remains, that indwells within us, um, and we desire to grow away uh, from ungodliness and to grow into maturity in every nook and cranny of our life. So I pray that you might instruct us as your people today. I pray that we would receive this message, whether we are just, whether we're desiring to have children in the middle of raising children or those days have long passed. I pray that we would all uh, receive this truth and see how we might be able uh, to follow you in this way. So help us in this time, God, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So who... Who is it that is responsible for the discipleship of children? <clears throat> I think, ask that question, we would probably usually say, well, the parents. 
right? It falls upon parents. They are responsible for that. Um, But it seems to me that practically, in the last at least generation or two, that largely we have handed that duty over to others. And maybe we see that as delegation, right? We're delegating that duty to someone else. Um, In the last number of years, we've seen an, an increase of the whole children's ministry, youth ministry phenomenon that's fairly novel, fairly fairly new. Um, I myself once was a youth pastor, so I'm familiar with that sort of thing. If you've been here for a while, you, you, you may have heard me speak somewhat negatively of children's church youth ministry. Um, I, don't, I don't do that to say that those men that lead and pastor children are unfaithful, that they don't love those kids, they don't teach them the Bible. But what's happened, it seems, that with the onslaught of youth ministry, children's ministry, is that we've taken the children out of the worship service, we've divided the church into age groups, and we've handed the main duty of discipling children over to Sunday school teachers and youth pastors. Instead of what we had in the past, which was faithful biblical instruction in the home, daily family worship in the home, and the catechizing of our children in biblical doctrine in the home, in many ways we've replaced that with pizza parties and craft time and snack time with a little Bible story sort of sprinkled in. And I think if we're honest, we're seeing the fruit of that in the church. We're seeing a generation that is biblically illiterate, that doesn't even know the Bible, that sat in churches for many years, but don't have a, a more than a shallow comprehension. So my, my desire today is to do what it says in Jeremiah 6.16, is to, is to stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths, where the good way is, what the Bible has to say about discipling children, that we may walk in it and find rest for our souls. When we started this series a couple months back, I I made some statements about families, and I want to reread those to you. I said, one of the main purposes of the family and marriage is to pass on God's royal image, to produce godly seed that worship and fill the earth with the reflection of his praise and glory. And I was making the case that that was one of the key purposes of the family in general, that the charge in the Garden of Eden to be fruitful and multiply is not just to reproduce children, but to reproduce men and women that fear Yahweh, that worship their creator, and to spread that worship across the earth. I said something secondly, that this spreading of the praise and worship of God is not passed down passively. Sadly, our faith is not passed down to our children just because They were born into our families. But it happens through largely faithful instruction of parents. So I want to frame this sermon today around three questions. Who is responsible for discipling children? I think you already see where I'm going there. What instruction does God give fathers and parents? And number three, what fruit would we hope to see from family discipleship? So today is sort of going to be the the is it is who is this for some instruction from the Lord and next week Lord willing we'll look at some real practical application of the doing of family worship 
So the first question, who is responsible for discipling children? And I want to begin in Deuteronomy 4. We'll look at three texts. I've bitten off quite a bit here today, so I'm going I'm to keep moving. <laughs> i got a lot to cover, but I, I hope I can bring it home in a somewhat timely fashion. So Deuteronomy chapter 4 and verse 9 is where we'll begin. And it says there, Deuteronomy 4, 9, only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and your children's children. How on the day that you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children so. All throughout the, the scripture, especially in the old covenant, it, it still continues in the new, but especially in the old, there is this theme to remember, this charge from God to remember. We just sang, here I raise my Ebenezer. It's a rock of remembrance, a memorial stone, a, a pillar there to remember God's gracious acts in the past. Over and over, that charge is given to the people of God. There must be something to that, right? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are always tempted to forget what God has done and thus fall away from His grace. And He charges in here the, the, the saints, the believers in the Old Covenant, to keep their soul diligently, lest they forget what their eyes have seen. They witnessed these things, unless they, those works, depart from your heart all the days of your life. And he says something next. Make them known to your children and your children's children. He gives this charge here to the parents to tell your kids what it is that you have seen God do. Do not forget what God has done, what you saw with your own eyes, and then pass that down not only to your children, but to your children's children. Vodi Bakum, I appreciate, calls this multi-generational faithfulness. And that's our desire, right? I don't know about you, but my desire for my children, at least those that are in the home, is not just that they conform to biblical norms in the home, and then as soon as they leave, do whatever they desire. My goal is not even that they become believers, but then sort of just go off and do whatever and not take it seriously. But my desire is that they would raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, that they would have a burden for Christ and his gospel and open up the word to their children and their children on down the road. And that's the command here that God gives. Teach these things. Make them known to your kids and to their kids that they might know the great things that God has done. He went on in verse 10 and he speaks of events in the past. And he says, when I said, gather the people to me that I may that I may let them hear my words so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth. 
God wanted them to see, to sense, to hear his words and to remember him that they might fear God all of their lives, that they might worship God and serve God and revere him. And then he says, and that they may teach their children so, that they may teach their children to fear God, that they may teach their children to worship God. So we see here in this passage two times, two charges given to parents to not forget what God has done and to teach and reveal and speak those things to their children and their children's children. It's a long game, grand vision of faithfulness to Christ. Turn the page one or so over to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. And we'll begin in verse 4 at a, at a, a, a Probably a well-known passage of Scripture, what is known as the Shema. Uh, a faithful Jew would have prayed this prayer. It's sort of a, a confessional statement of the, the oneness, the monotheism of, of Yahweh. The Israelites lived in a, in a land where there was gods everywhere, a God in every corner, a God for every city, a God for every element of creation, whether it be fertility or the sun. But they confessed one true and living God. This was an important prayer for them. And he says there in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house. And when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. You see the instruction that God gives through his servant to the people. And firstly, he addresses them. He addresses heads of households, parents. And he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, and all of your might. As we think about the discipleship of children, it begins with a sincere, lively faith in the parents. A true love for the Lord Jesus Christ. A sincere hope in God, setting heart, soul, mind, and strength upon Him and upon His Word. We cannot assume to impart anything but a dead faith to our children if we at home live with a dead, cold faith in Christ. So I ask you today, whether you have children in the home or not, is this true of you? Do you have a sincere faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you love him as Moses commands with heart, soul, mind? Do you give your all Empowered by the Spirit, as imperfect as it is, do you give your all to Christ? Do you love Him above all else? He says, you shall love the Lord your God, heart, soul, and might. And secondly, he goes on and says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The second piece here for the parents still is that the word needs to be in our heart. We must be people of the word, people of scripture. He says these words need to be there. It's not just external. 
religious statements that I might hear in church and sort of go on the rest of my life living as I please. He says these words must be in your heart. They must shape you and mold you and steer you and drive you. He goes on. You shall teach them these words that are on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. Thirdly, in this text, we see a, a command for diligent instruction of children. Now, what does diligent mean? To teach them diligently means to teach them consistently. It means to teach them systematically. It means to teach them at, at times sacrificially that other things are going to need to fall by the wayside, that don't fit in the schedule, because this one great task has preeminence, that we diligently instruct our children with consistency, not we open up the Bible here and there when we sort of feel like it, when there's nothing on TV or we have a free night, but there's diligent instruction, commanded, consistent, systematic teaching of Scripture. And he goes on, you shall teach them diligently to your children, shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlets before your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So we have, firstly, diligent, formal instruction, but here we have informal, sort of all of life encompassing under the word of God. I mean, it's it's in his mouth when he sits, when he rises, when he goes to sleep, we're praying and praising God. When we wake up, we're praying and praising God. All of life is saturated here, it seems, with the scripture. There's diligent formal teaching and there's just informal all day long. So when when father or mother gives wisdom, it's wisdom grounded in Scripture, wisdom biblically informed. When father or mother imparts hope in repentance, when there's sin, it's hope in Christ, in the gospel found in the word. When there's correction and discipline needed, it's not just from some arbitrary standard, but it's thus says the Lord. This is why this is wrong. It's grounded in the word. It's not just my arbitrary things that annoy me, that you, you, you frustrated me here. There's a picture that all of life is, is under the word. And he, and he uses these illustrations that the Jews took to a, a level maybe beyond what he meant. But he says you should have the word as signs on your hands, fixed on your hands. We see our hands all day long and we do everything with our hands. And he says, have the word of God there fixed as a sign. He says, have it as frontlets before your eyes. If the word is in front of your eyes, you don't see anything without seeing Scripture. You don't see anything without biblical wisdom in a, in a Christian worldview. Everything is seen through the lens of the word. He says, put it on the, on the doorpost of your house, on the front door. As Joshua says, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is a house under the authority of Scripture. And put it on your gates, the perimeter of the property. The word of God is everywhere. Protecting, instructing, leading. Moses commands parents here to teach these things diligently to your children. 
I think you see a, a clear picture that the Word of God is being, is being taught, instructed in the home. And you might say, well, this is, this is Deuteronomy. We're, we're way back in the Old Covenant. We're, we're in the wilderness still. We're not even in the promised land yet. Certainly something has changed. We live differently now. We're, we're under grace. We're under Christ now. But look at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, and I think this text is very relevant because what Paul does to, to validate his commands is he appeals to Moses. He appeals to the law, to the old covenant, to the very next commandment that we'll read next week, Lord willing, in our, in our liturgy. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord or the fear and admonition of the Lord. What, is, what has he done? I think he shows us great continuity between Old Covenant and New Covenant. He gives a command and he, and he sources it in Moses. He goes back to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, God's standard of morality. So he does that, and then he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And I see him here basically affirming all that Moses has previously said. This is a, a summarization of some of the things that we just said. Still, to this day, fathers are to bring up their children in the faith, in the Lord, discipling and disciplining and instructing them from the Scripture. There's other texts that we could look at, but I believe that Scripture points to parents for the spiritual formation of their children. Now, this doesn't mean that the, the church is off the hook, as if the church just ministers to adults and not children, and I'm not saying that at all. But certainly it seems that God has ordained households, the formation of a child day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out is under that headship of father and mother. I want to speak to a few directly here. Firstly, children. Children. I think, oh, we have, oh, we got Carter sitting there sneaking. <laughs> Didn't see you there. Um, children. God has called your parents to disciple you, to shepherd you, to point you to Jesus Christ. Because as you just said earlier, all sin deserves the anger and judgment of God. And they want to spare you from that anger and judgment of God. They want you to know the grace and the mercy and goodness of the Christ that they love. So I, I exhort you, children, as your pastor, to listen to your parents. Let them lead you. Let them guide you. Believe them. They, they want to be a blessing to you. They want to bless you and keep you from harm and point you to that which is good. Maybe you're here and this is a challenge for you because you're saying, look, pastor, I launched my kids 40 years ago. They're long gone, right? I'm, this, this season is past, and I, I get that. You may today have grandkids. You may very well have great-grandchildren. Praise God for those blessings. But I think as parents, 
as we look back on our child rearing, whenever that was, there are things that we look back and say, that was, that was great, praise God, that was fruitful. And there are areas where we look back with regret and say, if I would have known better, how did I miss that? Why did we handle things like that? Why didn't we do such and such? So you have a great opportunity to be an asset to families now that are bumbling through the challenges of raising little ones as we're sort of figuring things out often as we go, right? Learning as things come to us. No one is an expert. When you go to the hospital that first time, when mom's about to have a baby, you, you, you bring home a baby and you say, what do I do? How do, we, how do we protect this little gift? But you, if you've been through this already, you can help young families avoid the pitfalls Give them wisdom of things that worked and didn't work. Show them the regret that you have, the, the, the I really wish I could go back. We can't go back in time, but we can certainly be a blessing to someone that is in the thick of it today. And I think also you have an opportunity to minister as the Lord provides to your grandchildren. I know because of family situations, we don't always have as much influence on our children and their children as we would like. But as the Lord gives opportunity, what a blessing to be able to pour into our grandchildren, maybe in a way that we wish we would have back then when our children were young. Some of you are here today praying for children and that will listen to this. That don't have kids yet, but are desirous to have kids. And I would exhort you as we think about discipling children and family worship and these things, we'll talk more about that next week, that you would start now. Start setting these patterns and these rhythms today. Don't wait until children come to, to sort of try to figure it out then. But get into the rhythm now so that when the children come, you're bringing them into something that is already taking place. I asked the question earlier of who is responsible for discipleship. And if I tweaked that a bit and said who is responsible for educating our children, I think we would probably say something like this. The responsibility of parents is to have their children educated, to get them educated. However that happens, right? This school, that school, homeschool. I think we would at least say that in our day, that it is responsible for a parent to see their kids be educated. And we would probably say a parent is unfaithful if they don't teach their kids how to read and write and give them an education. So we've delegated, right? We've, we've, we've delegated often education. I want to encourage us, we can't do that here with discipleship. The stakes are far too high to entrust the spiritual formation of our children into someone else's hands or, or to trust that just what they get on Sunday at church is enough to form their little minds into a Christian worldview. And, and the reality is, when we talk about education and discipleship, these two are one. And when we need to know if we hand our kids over to any school that they're being discipled by their teachers and by their peers. Uh, we just need to go into a situation knowing that that is certainly taking place. Education is discipleship as they're being formed. So God gives, I believe, the onus to parents, the mantle to disciple children. Number two, what instruction does he give fathers and parents. What instruction does he give fathers and parents? I want to hear first kind of look at some principles. These are not the, the daily what to do 
Um, but turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 78. Psalm 78. I think we can, we can see some principles and begin to lay a foundation here as to what God would have and what this looks like. So Psalm 78, verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the word of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Again, we see this call, this charge to pass down the faith to the next generation, to tell of his glorious deeds, his might and the wonders that he has done. So firstly, I think it's plain here that the discipleship of children requires a knowledge of the truth. It requires a knowledge of the truth. We cannot pass down something that we have not yet apprehended, that we have no real knowledge of. He says, tell the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord. Where do we find, church, the glorious deeds of the Lord? In the scripture, right? Certainly we have testimonies of his faithfulness in our lives, and that is part of that, because these were experiences they had, but the glorious redemptive acts of God are found in the scripture. That means if we truly want to impart the faith to our children, we have to in some way give them the Bible, feed them the scriptures, walk with them through the word and have a working knowledge of God's word. Does it mean you need a seminary degree? There are many helps out there. I have some in my office I plan to give out next week. But God has given us many gifts that a man of the house Women of the house can be equipped to lead the family in this way and to teach the scripture. So there must be a, a, a knowledge of the truth to tell of these glorious deeds. Verse 5, he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. Again, do you see, firstly, the charge commanded our fathers to teach the children. And secondly, there's this long game vision of multi-generational faithfulness. But the discipleship of children then here, number two, requires diligence. We, we said that earlier. Moses said, teach diligently your children. If we think that we're going to impart the faith to our children and to those yet unborn that, that we don't even know will come yet, it's going to take diligence. It's going to take consistency. I was reading a story this, or a book this past week, and a story was told um, from a pastor named Joel Beakey. If, you've, if you're familiar with Joel Beakey, um, praise God. If you're not, um, everything he writes is, is worth picking up and reading but he told a story of his family. They had five children, including him, his, 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 his home, I mean his parents' home when he was a kid. There was five of them. And they had an anniversary for their parents, and the children all wanted to come together and tell mom and dad each one thing that they were thankful for from their childhood. Each of them was to pick something 
and they were going to come and have a meal and tell mom, this is why I so appreciate you. Dad, this is why I so appreciate you. They all did this independently, and they came to the meeting. All five of them told their mother, we appreciated your burden to pray for us, your prayer life. We heard you pray for our souls day in and day out. We saw you pleading before the throne of grace and carrying us there. We always knew that we were covered by prayer. All five chose that one thing on their own about their mother. When it came to their father, all five chose how he led them faithfully in family worship, how he opened up the scriptures and pointed them to Jesus Christ. That doesn't happen just with some every now and then opening up God's word. This was a lifetime of soul care on those children, diligent, faithful instruction over and over and over, pointing them to Christ, pointing them to the cross and praying for their souls. Zachary Garris says this, he says, one of the chief goals of the Christian household is to bear and raise children to become godly men and women. Christians should order their entire lives around this task. Do you agree with that? Now, now don't mishear me. This is not the modern day idea that the children run the home and we sort of do everything that they want. They are central in that they choose what to do, when to do it, these activities, this. It's not that at all. But the parents' lives are ordered in such a way that the children are pointed to Christ, discipled in the word. That means sacrifices are made. Are made. Oftentimes the parents overruling desires of the children because there's something better to set before them. Verse 7, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. I think we see here that the discipleship of children requires a sincere hope in Christ. Similar to what we saw in Deuteronomy 6. Set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. This is a true, living, active hope in Jesus Christ. Hope in the gospel. Hope when repenting for the thousandth time that God is willing to receive me again. That God is gracious to answer my prayer. It's hope in today. Hope in tomorrow because of Jesus. Do you have this sort of hope? Do you live every day in this life with hope? Not in temporal things today, ultimately, but hope in a Savior that bled and died in your place, that if the Lord should take you today and snatch your life from you, that you would be in his presence in that moment. Do you have that sort of hope? And are you imparting it to those around you, to your kids if they're in the home, to your adult children, to your grandchildren? Do they know that mom, dad, Grandma, grandpa loves Jesus and has hope. She's not grumbling and griping about every little thing all the time, but she loves the Lord, her God. Now, we, we know certainly that God saves sinners, right? God is the one that saves. All of our instruction in all the world is not enough unless the Holy Spirit owns it and gives the gift of faith and changes their little hearts. But so often, He saves children from a Christ-centered, word-saturated, hopeful, joyous home that loves God. 
Is that what your wife and your, or your husband see when you're at home? Is that what your children see in you at home? A joyful person that loves Jesus Christ, that has a real, lively, sincere faith, that has set their hope on God? Or do they see a hypocrite? Do they see a grumbling, frustrated, hopeless, angry, Christ professor with a, with a negative outlook on everything? Do they see a, a smiling person on Sunday morning and a different dad all together Sunday afternoon? Do they cringe when they see you act at church nice and sweet, but go home and tear their head off? God help us that our children might see in us sincere, lively hope and joy because the gospel has truly rent our heart and taken out that heart of stone. Verse 8, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The discipleship of children requires an honest dealing with sin, an honest dealing with sin. I think first and foremost, our own sin. Sins of the past, failures and hurts and wounds and lies and mistrust and whatever it might be that has come from your lips and your life, that we might model sincere repentance, honesty, and acknowledging of our shortcomings. It takes an honest dealing of sin in the present, that right now I might go to my son or daughter in repentance and ask them for forgiveness. That it's not me trying to lord over my child that I'm righteous and you are not, but that the burden we have is that we're earnestly desiring to bring them to the cross with us. That we both there might find forgiveness. But it also requires an honest dealing with their sin. With their sin. If we constantly cover their sin and sweep it under the rug, then we teach them that God does the same. Repentance is not required. That we can go on sinning. Lastly, what fruit would we hope to see? What fruit would we hope to see from family discipleship? And I want to try to give a biblical example out of Psalm 44. There's much that we could say to this question, but I, I, I came across this passage a, a while back and was encouraged and comforted by it. Psalm 44 Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days. In the days of old, you with your own hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the people, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. So, so what do we see here? We, I, I believe we see a people obedient to Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 4 in Psalm 78. They had imparted a glorious vision of God to their children. They, these kids, when they were kids, had not seen these mighty deeds of the Lord, but they had heard of them 
in such a way that they were compelled to also look to this God. Now, this generation that's speaking here, it gets very difficult for them. I don't have time to read the whole psalm, but um, we see in verse 11, you have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. Verse 12, you've sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. Verse 17, all this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way. Yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. They're in a, 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 a desperate place, right? They, they sense God's grace, is, his presence is gone. It is absent, that he's given them over to their enemies. They don't know, it seems, the glorious, gracious deeds that their fathers did. But look what they do in verse 23. Awake. Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. In the day of trial in the day of tribulation, in the day of evil, where they feel as if God had forsaken them, who do they turn to? They turn to God. They turn to the God of their fathers who had imparted to them the glorious deeds that He had done. They had not seen His gracious hand work in this way, but they had heard the tales that their fathers told them. So in that dark place, when it seemed like life was over, they still went to call upon the name of the Lord because their fathers had faithfully passed down the faith of the God that they loved. Well, next week, church, we will get a little bit more practical on the doing of these things, Lord willing. And I just want to, to, to say I stand here as a, as a, 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 a far from perfect father needing the desperate grace of God every day with many regrets, looking back into the past, but earnestly desiring to see reformation in my heart and in my home. God has ordained, I believe, that fathers and mothers, heads of household, raise their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. The spiritual formation of children, in some degree we've seen of grandchildren, falls upon the parents, right? We're responsible in many ways for our grandchildren because we produce their parents. Right? We, we disciple their parents and form them into who they are. But what a glorious calling this is. What a glorious stewardship. God has given entrusted souls into the hands of believers. God gives a quiver of arrows, whatever number of children he desires to give. And we have 18 or so years to sharpen those arrows, to train them, to teach them to be worshipers of Jesus Christ, that they might be launched into this world, faithful, loving their God. 
I know that not everyone has children. Uh, I believe that those that don't, whether you have or never have, can still be a blessing to those that do, can help, support, come alongside. And those that desire to have children begin today to plan and to build and to pray and to prepare. Do not neglect this glorious calling and hand it off to someone else. Because thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Let's pray.